Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney, the host of How They Love Mary. When I began this podcast back in 2019, I had a vision, and that was one day I would publish a book called How They Love Mary. Over my life as a writer and researcher, I have read the writings of many holy men and women and many saints, and I have discovered how they loved the Blessed Mother and they have inspired me. I'm excited to share that at the end of April, Sophia Institute Press will release the book, How They Love Mary, 28 Life-Changing Stories of Marian Devotion. It features saints like St. Damien of Molokai, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Therese of Lisieux, and other unknown people like Mother Mary Francis from Roswell, New Mexico, or Father Lucas Etlin, a monk who died back in the early 1900s from Conception Abbey in Missouri. I am so excited for How They Love Mary to hit bookshelves and to get into your hands so that you might deepen your devotion to the Blessed Mother. Get How They Love Mary from Sophia Institute Press or wherever you get your Catholic books. Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Stacy Trasenkos, and she is a co-author with Father George Elliott of a book called Behold It Is I. It is from Tan Books. Many of you know that I've been collaborating with Tan Books on an initiative as I've been reading The Mystical City of God by Venerable Maria Vagrida every day this year, releasing a new episode on a podcast called The Mystical City of God in a Year podcast. And so with that relationship with Tan, they asked me, well, would you love to talk about the Eucharist and this new book? And I said, of course I would. And this week is Holy Week, and we have Holy Thursday coming up, where we celebrate that very night where Jesus instituted the Holy Eucharist when he sat down to celebrate the Last Supper, the Passover, with his disciples. He took bread and said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body. And he did the same with a chalice filled with wine, saying, this is my blood. And so the Lord remains with us, and we behold him at every Mass as the priest says, Behold the Lamb of God. So I'm very delighted to be speaking with Dr. Stacy Trasankos because uh, we've known each other for quite a while. Uh, I used to write for a website called Catholic Lane and then for Ignitum Today. This was in the very early days of my writing experience. And so she was the editor, I believe, for both of those websites at that time. And, uh, and so uh, she's gone on to do other things and work. Uh, she is a scientist. She is a mother. She has worked with the St. Philip Institute down in Tyler, Texas, under Bishop uh, Joseph Strickland. And now she joins me on How They Love Mary Today. So welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Father Looney. It's been really wonderful knowing you, gosh, almost a decade now, uh, probably more than a decade, um, and, and watching your trajectory as, as you have really made an impact in the Catholic world uh, with all of your, with your devotion to Mary and your writing and your speaking. And uh, it, it's just been really wonderful to know you these years. 
Well, thanks so much. And, you know, I can say the same for you as I've followed you and seen where God has called you. And I know that I just recently saw something where you're stepping away, in a sense, uh, from a major role at the St. Philip Institute and kind of um, going back into the role of mother and and uh, in that capacity. So, um, but you've done wonderful things with the Institute there as well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, life is a journey of discernment. I'm learning, and and you never get to that point where you're like, "There, I arrived. I'm all done." It's you're constantly. I find constantly asking God, "What what would you have me do?" and 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 trying to say, figure out what that is and say yes to it and and keep going through life until until hopefully, God willing, we make it to heaven one day. That's right. And, you know, one of the things that God has called you to do in all of this work is that you've written a few books. I know that you wrote a book maybe called Particles of Faith. I'm just going off the Mm -hmm. top of my head. That's with Ave Maria Press. And so kind of looking at science and faith and the relationship between that. And and now you've co-authored this book with Father George Elliott, Behold, It Is I. So it's a book about the Eucharist and especially Eucharistic miracles. And you discuss the science behind these Eucharistic miracles. And maybe just before we get to the Eucharistic miracle aspect of our conversation, John Paul II wrote Fides et Ratio, this faith and reason. He says that they can intersect. They don't have to be opposed. A lot of people think, and and Bishop Robert Barron has done a really good job with his Word on Fire Apostolate to try to showcase the fact that many great Catholics were scientists, including priests, like the Big Bang Mm -hmm. Theory, for example, and other Mm -hmm. ways that priests have impacted the scientific field. So, why is it, do you think, that we view science and religion at odds, and how can we overcome that and actually realize that faith and science can go together? Yeah, man, that that's like a theme of all of my work, um, because I, I love chemistry. I was a chemist before I converted and became Catholic, and and becoming Catholic just opened my eyes to the wider world and, um, you know, the, the fuller reality, the fullness of the truth. And really the solution here, I mean, why do people think there's a conflict right now? It's because we live in a time of an explosion of scientific knowledge and and technology that comes from that. Uh, Never before in the history of mankind has there been this much knowledge gained about how the natural world works so fast. I mean, 100 years ago, we did scientists didn't even think of the atom the way they think of the atom and electrons now. And because we understand electrons in atoms, we've been able to make things like smartphones and global communication and global travel. And um, it, it's really astounding. And I think people born in this time don't realize the explosion and the, that we're still in the scientific revolution. And so it, it kind of seems like to people who aren't religious that science is of the empirical and faith is something mystical and 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 for people who just have weak intellects and can't learn the science. But science really came from the Christian worldview, this idea that God, a rational, loving, good God, all merciful, all knowing, all present God created in the beginning of time a universe that that was created out of love and that was created with order. And it it is this view of the universe that actually 
caused Catholic scholars in the Middle Ages to start applying mathematics to the movement of objects in nature, what we call physics now. And and that that was the start of it. And so all the work I do is to try to get um, Catholics to understand that our our heritage actually is very intimately united with science. Um, the science was born of Christianity and that the solution to today's confusions is to simply remember what we pray in the first line of the creed, that I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and that science is simply our human effort um, to study the handiwork of God. We're, we're, we're studying what God created, and nature is creation. So so for us, science is the study of the handiwork of God. For people who don't believe, it's the study of nature, and they don't have any answer for where nature came from. So um, th- that's really the solution. Whatever, whatever weird conclusions scientists come up with today, because they're not philosophers, and they're not theologians, and they don't understand a lot of that that higher level of thinking, and they make philosophical conclusions anyway. It's simply for us a matter of, of realizing what science is, the study of the handiwork of God, and then correcting the scholars who are not Catholic or not Christian. And and I think most of our work today is is trying to get them to understand why science, philosophy, and theology need to be united. Well, back in the day, I studied some of the French school of spirituality. And when I say the French school of spirituality, what I mean here is that kind of a group, a collective body of people who lived in the same time, who influenced one another, not necessarily like a school that you would go to, but just kind of the pooling of their ideas and the influence of them. And I just remember reading, and it was Cardinal Berule who I was reading, but, you know, he was taking Copernicus and the revolution of the the son and and such, and basically drew an analogy. And he said, you know, just as this takes place, well, then so too our lives should revolve around the son who is Jesus. And so Mm -hmm. even we could take some of these scientific realities and even apply them to the spiritual life. Absolutely, because God, God, we're creatures. The world we live in was created for us to, to live in. And to be stewards of, and and it only makes sense that that if we're created in the image and likeness of God, that we would find the images of God also in the rest of nature that He created, and that it's those are gifts there for us to discover with our rational um, souls and you know our intellect and our wills. That it's all there for us, and I mean, knowing what I know about nature as a scientist. I feel like I have this very special privileged insight into the mind of God that I wouldn't have if I hadn't studied a chemistry textbook. <laughs> you know, um, there, there's so many parallels in nature and in, in just how atoms bond. There's parallels to how we form relationships, how we bond our souls together. Um, and it, it it is really beautiful. I think that you could write volumes about what you just said about the the metaphors and the parallels that we see in nature to our own lives. And as we look for God, one of the ways that we find God, of course, as Catholic believers is 
in our churches, that the Lord Jesus is present there uh, in the Holy Eucharist, reserved in the tabernacle, often placed in a monstrance for public adoration. And so this is really what makes us uniquely Catholic. And a lot of times when I'm talking with individuals and they'll be like, well, you know, the only difference between Catholics and, and Lutherans is that we believe that it's really Jesus in the Eucharist and that he stays there, you know? And so a lot of people kind of understand that, that this is what truly does uniquely make us Catholic, that we believe body, blood, soul, and divinity, this term that St. Thomas Aquinas used, transubstantiation, using Aristotelian uh, philosophy, arriving at this idea of the fact that Jesus is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And in our church, we have different times that we focus on that. Of course, this week, Holy Thursday, that's a moment in which we really think about the Holy Eucharist. We process with the Blessed Sacrament. We keep watch with the Lord, etc. You know, and then on Corpus Christi, either on a Thursday or it's on a Sunday, typically been transferred to Sunday in the United States. And so we have Corpus Christi and Eucharistic processions happen that day. And there's one lectionary cycle uh, in the three-year rotation that in the month of August, typically, we hear the Bread of Life discourse. So we kind of understand this reality. Of course, a lot of Catholics actually don't believe in the real presence, but you mentioned earlier that you're a convert to the faith. And so was the Eucharist a stumbling block for you, or how did you receive the Eucharist? What's your experience of the Eucharist as you come into the Catholic faith? That is, um, I remember reading about Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton's conversion. Um, I mean, it was in a, it was in the preface of a book that a priest gave me while I was going through RCIA. And she had this moment in Italy where she was staying after her husband died and she was staying with friends who were Catholic. And she was in the street watching the Eucharistic procession on the Feast of Corpus Christi. And um, a, a man walked up to her and said, can you believe all these peasants kneeling in the street? They believe that's really Christ. And she said in that moment, there was a resounding yes in her heart, too. And, and she said, I believe it, too. And that was the moment, you know, when she granted assent to the truths of the faith. And it was like that for me as well. I think it's like that for a lot of people because there's no in-between. There's no halfway that you you either accept that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist or you don't. But if you accept it and you don't want to talk out of both sides of your mouth, if you're a logical person, that right there, that, that Christ is there in the Eucharist at every Mass or every Eucharistic adoration it changes everything about your life. It changes your, it realigns your whole perspective. Uh, for one, you're going to accept what the church teaches, um, that, that the church has guarded the deposit of faith over time. You're going to accept what the church teaches, even if you don't understand it. You're going to live it because you will come to understand it. It's, a, it's about trust. Um, and, and, and it changes how you view your obligations to other people and your obligation more than anything to God um, going to mass. It's an obligation uh, because we're trying to thank God for our existence. So in that moment, when I when I knew, do I or do I not believe it? I knew that it was going to change everything. But I was so thankful to understand the meaning of my life at that point, I was more than willing to change. And I also had my husband, who's a cradle Catholic, um, 
growing in his own faith alongside me. Um, so I knew we were going to do this together. And, and, you know, from that point on, it's like we're building this life together <laughs> and, and we're trying to get each other to heaven. And, and I don't know, it's just like so many Catholics say, my, my life suddenly just made sense. Um, and it, it was hard. I knew what I was saying because I, I remember asking a priest, you want me to kneel at mass and stare at the host and the chalice? And I know as a chemist, it's not just about taste and, and what I can see with my eyes. I know as a chemist, there's nothing going on different at the atomic level. I just have to believe that even though nothing physical changes at all, I have to accept that Jesus is just suddenly there. And the priest is like, yeah, that that's what we're at. That that is the purest and simplest form of faith. Christ said it. Do you believe it? And so I was like, okay, I, I do. And here we go. And here I am. So it it is. I, I Father Stanley Yaki once said that that this is my body. That our belief in the real presence is the truest and simplest form of faith. And it's fitting that our whole faith starts there. You mentioned the story of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, and actually, I have to admit, I haven't heard that story, so I'm glad to have heard it, and now I'm going to be using it uh, in different <laughs> things that I do, I'm sure. And so this person, as people are kneeling in the street, says they really believe this is God. They believe this is Jesus, and, and he has doubts. And she said, as you recounted, that, well, I believe this, and she knelt down. And you come to this belief in the true presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity. But we know that from some of these surveys that come out that they say about 30% mm -hmm. of Catholics believe that. So that means 70 other percent of Catholics either believe that this is just a mere symbol, which is something, you know, would be from the Methodist or Presbyterian tradition, that maybe it's Christ's presence for a moment, but it doesn't stay there. Or, you know, they just don't understand it. They don't believe it. And so they come to these other conclusions. So why do you think that the majority of Catholics Catholics actually don't believe in the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I think, uh, I, I, I mean, I, I'm all I'm all caught up in science, right? But but I do think the explosion in technology and science, like I was talking about before, in our time, I think there's so much knowledge to be known. There's so much, just like trying to keep up with the latest technologies on how to publish a podcast, you know, like there's so much to keep up with. There's so many decisions to make about the products we buy, the the homes we live in, the way we decorate it, the cars we have, the way we educate our children. There's just so many decisions to be made, which are which all flow from this this scientific knowledge and technology, better living through science, right? Um, I think it crowds out many people's ability to be silent and contemplate deeper truths. And I, and I think what got lost in there is a contemplation or a consideration of what it means to believe. I mean, for me, a chemist, I really had to grapple with that. What, what is it? B belief is not the same as knowledge. And nobody ever told me that till I was becoming Catholic, that there's t belief is accepting the testimony of someone as true. And you're not going to be able to see it with your own eyes and you're not going to be able to. And, and I realized a lot of what I know about chemistry was belief. I accepted the testimony of people who came before me. I've never seen an atom, but I believe they're there. Um, so 
I think a lot of people today don't really understand what it means to believe in something. Because if they did think about that, and if they did say, I, I believe that Jesus Christ is real, then they're going to be compelled to believe what Jesus Christ told them. It's God. I mean, if you can't believe God, you can't believe anybody. So I, I just think people haven't thought it through enough. And, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about silence and critical thinking and, and all of that and leisure. I, I think um, that's, that's mostly at fault for people not believing in the real presence. They just haven't had to give it enough thought to get their head around it. I want to move into the Eucharistic miracles, but before we do that, uh, you mentioned earlier, just a few moments ago, uh, about a priest named Father Stanley Yaki. And I know that you've done a lot of research or study about him, but that's a name people might not be familiar with. So who is he and why is he important? Oh, yeah. I'm like, I never met him because he passed away the year before I started studying theology. He passed away in 2009 and I converted in 2006. So I, I missed getting to know him face to face in this life. But I've read many of his books and was just so he was a pre uh, he was from Hungary um, and he was a priest, a Benedictine, and he had a Ph.D. in physics and a Ph.D. in theology. And he spent his life researching a lot of things. But the theme through all of his research was what I said before, that science was born of Christianity. What is the root of the Christian birth of science and how what facts are there in the historical record to show that science was still born in other ancient cultures, but it, it flourished and became a viable discipline unto itself in the Christian West in the Middle Ages, long before most people think the scientific revolution started in the 1600s. Um, and I think what he has done for the Catholic world is tremendous because he if it takes a lot of time to go through all of his research because he was exhaustive. Like, I don't think I could read everything he wrote in my lifetime. I don't know how he wrote it in his lifetime. Hmm. Um, but he, he's very strong there. And I, I just work now. I feel like it was, I, I, I've strongly felt that God was calling me to pass on his message to the next generation. Because I think our young people especially need to know that don't ever set your faith aside when you go into the laboratory, get out there and help the scientific community understand what it means to be human and what it means to progress the human race. And we, we need scientists of faith being the leaders. We don't need scientists who don't know what philosophy and theology are. We need scientists who understand the fullness of the truth. So I think that's his contribution. And I, that's why I, I do work a lot to further his teaching. So one of the things that you do in Behold, It Is I is you really give kind of the scientific explanation background, especially about some of these Eucharistic miracles, but people might not know what a Eucharistic miracle is. So where are some of these Eucharistic miracles and what happened? What took place? Eucharistic miracles, and I'm sure you've covered this a lot in your podcast and your writing and speaking, but you know, a miracle is, there's a lot of different ways to, that word is defined. It, it can mean awe and wonder, but specifically with the Eucharist, a miracle would be where something physical did change. So in, 
and so it would it would be transubstantiation, meaning that there was a change, but the substance the substance changed, but the physical characteristics didn't. The atoms didn't do anything different. In a Eucharistic miracle, the atoms do something different, like the host becomes uh, muscle tissue, or the wine becomes not just the bo- the blood of Christ, but also physically becomes blood that you can measure the blood type of and you can do hemoglobin tests on. So uh, we're talking about miracles like that. And there are other miracles as well. There are miracles where the hosts elevated, they floated, um, where they left impressions in stone, even though they're just little light wafers. Um, There's a lot of other Eucharistic miracles. But since I was only writing the third part of the three-part book, and since the most important thing is what scripture and tradition say, uh, I only narrowed my research down to three miracles. The the one in Balsena that uh, is said to be responsible for the institution of the Feast of Corpus Christi, um, the 1990s miracles in Buenos Aires, and then the famous Lanciano miracle from the 700 AD. So I just covered those three. And if I'm not mistaken, one of these miracles, kind of the background story is that the priest had some doubts about the Holy Eucharist. He stood at the altar, said those words, this is my body, but then he didn't necessarily believe it. And so he had this experience of a miracle in which the host really became true flesh, not just a not just a piece of bread transubstantiated, but actually the true flesh. Is that one of the stories? Do I have that right? Yeah, and and they in the writings um, he's referred to as Peter of Prague, and and he was a German priest who was in Prague, and he was actually traveling through Bolsena. If you look at a map, Bolsena is a little bit north of Rome. He was traveling down, traveling south from Prague down through Balsena on his way to Rome because he wanted to take this pilgrimage to deal, to strengthen his faith in the Eucharist and to resolve his doubts. And just before he got to Rome, when he stopped at Balsena, to, he, he um, celebrated Holy Mass in the, uh, was it the Church of St. Christina, and, uh, who was a martyr from the third century. And, and yeah, he, the, the writings say that blood started running down his hand and he he dropped it onto the corporal and there was water on the cloth underneath um the cl- the corporal the cloth and it, he took it on to rome to show per- pope urban the fourth what happened um and that you know it was it was a miracle because he was doubting and it's a really beautiful story um and i and i i think it's it's very interesting. I, I found it very interesting that the Feast of Corpus Christi was tied to that miracle, but I hadn't heard that a lot before. Um, and, I, and I was surprised to find that historians, I guess we shouldn't be surprised, but historians disagreed on what actually happened there. And like anything with history, it's frustrating because you can't actually sit down and talk to people who were there. Yeah, right. These Eucharistic miracles then that take place, they're available for people to see. So someone could go to Italy, they could go to Mm -hmm. Buenos Aires, and this Eucharistic miracle is on display. And they can actually witness and see that this really took place, that this isn't just something made up, but that it's actually real. 
Yeah, they can see that. I mean, if you go to the cathedral in Orvieto and the Basilica in Balsena, there are relics from the miracle still there today. The, the corporal that was stained with blood is called the corporal of Bolsena, and it, it, it and the patent are kept at the Cathedral of Orvieto. So they were moved from the, from the St. Christina Chapel into Orvieto, and they're enshrined in gold, and they've been there since 1337. <laughs> they've wow. been there. The, the altar and the marble slabs that were stained with blood are also still in Bolsena in the Church of St. Christina. So Yes, you can go see them, and you can even see a painting by um, Raphael in the the Apostolic Palace at, at the Vatican. So even he knew about this miracle and had had painted a scene from it. I remember being at a Marian conference uh, a while back. I was one of the speakers, and so then you stay, you participate in the weekend, and there was something going on at the time. I think this man had made a, a video or something like that, filmed a documentary in which he traced like four different things. You know, one was like someone who was writing and like this writing was totally inspired by God or whatever, and they didn't have control over it themselves. Or one of them was the Eucharistic miracle. And basically kind of the, the premise behind this video was that, well, science can't tell us why this is happening. You know, science mm -hmm. can't tell us why this person is like writing these things without control over their own hand or whatever. And so what does science tell us about some of these Eucharistic miracles? Well, the, as much as I love science, like I, I like to say, because this is truth, I, I don't think you'll find someone who loves chemistry more than I do. It fascinates me how ordered the world is at the atomic level, how our bodies, every nanosecond of our life is, is held together by this amazing orchestration of atoms that God created. It, it blows my mind. But as much as I love science, I am very, very hesitant to ever agree that science can prove much. I mean, we, we just can't see atoms with our bare eyes. And so we're constantly kind of probing into the atomic realm, trying to understand things. And so for a scientist, um, and I hate it when people say, follow, just follow the science. That's not easy because we get data from a mysterious atomic realm or a quantum realm, and then we try to interpret it and we try to make sense of it. And people can interpret data in many different ways. And scientists often disagree on the interpretation of data. I was just saying with the Balsena miracle, even historians disagree on the historical record about that miracle. Some historians don't think it actually occurred because the Pope who instituted the feast didn't write anything about it. And they say, well, he would have if it had moved him to write about it. But we don't know because we can't go back and talk to him. With science, you you can do t tests today, but even the most rigorous test can't prove these miracles in the sense that we might want them to prove it, but they can tell us something about it. And, and you know, I think it's healthy and I think it's pious to remember what I said, that, that science is the study of the handiwork of God, and, and we are very limited as humans. And so when people study these Eucharistic miracles, I was actually disappointed in some of the scientific research that was done because if the point was to really 
show that this miracle happened. There, I don't just Stacy Trasenko's opinion, so take it for what it's worth. I, I don't think some of the tests were done as rigorously as they could have been. And I think some of the conclusions were exaggerated. And I say in the book, I'm actually concerned about that because if people realize the conclusions are being exaggerated and the data wasn't very rigorous, but yet Catholics are saying, oh, you should believe in the Eucharist because think about all these miracles. It almost, I, I worry that it runs the risk of making us sound like we don't fundamentally believe ourselves, that we need science to shore up our faith, which is something Father Yaki warned against. Like, don't, don't do that. You don't need science to shore up your faith. You need to realize that that science is just our human efforts to understand God. Um, so I was, I was really cautious in the book when reviewing the data for the science, for the Eucharistic miracles, but always, always, always with the umbrella of faith there that these miracles absolutely could happen. They can happen anytime God chooses to work a miracle for the sake of our salvation. God can do anything. And we absolutely have to believe in miracles I just wasn't so convinced by some of the science that what people said happened actually did happen. Does that make sense? Yes. And we talk about the science and different maybe tests that were done on these Eucharistic miracles. How can a test be done on a, the Eucharistic miracle without it somehow, I don't know, being sacrilegious or profaning yeah. what we truly behold in this great mystery? Exactly. And that is that that's kind of where I struggled with that. You know, you can I think you can hear it in my voice right now. I struggle with it because because I because I want to I so desperately want to be reverent when it comes to the Eucharist. I'm careful about I mean, studying theology. My professors taught me be very careful about the words you use. And so I'm, I'm even hesitant to speak because I want to be reverent. And I, I found a quote, um, if you don't mind, I'll read it. I found a quote from the Catechism of the Council of Trent in 1563 that really struck me. And the, the, the instruction there was to pastors. So it said, pastors, aware of the warning of the apostle that those who discern not the body of the Lord are guilty of a most grave crime. So he's talking about people that don't under, don't believe in the true presence. Um, they're guilty of a most grave crime, should first of all, so the pastors should first of all impress on the minds of the faithful the necessity of detaching as much as possible their mind and understanding from the dominion of the senses. For if they believe that this sacrament contains only what the senses disclose, and I would say what science can disclose, they will of necessity fall into enormous impiety. And I was like, bang, <laughs> like it, if we rely too much on science to shore up our faith, it is an act of impiety. Um, and so as a, you know, as much as I, as a, a mother and a, a scientist and a writer could contribute to that, I didn't want to write anything that would lead people to somehow get the impression that they had to believe in these miracles in order to believe in the real presence. I wanted to pull science away. I wanted to put science in its place and 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 remind us to be humble that that science is so limited it, it can't prove much um it's wonder it's wonderful it's awesome we can make smartphones but science still can't prove a lot of things and that 
if you need these miracles to be true in order to believe in the real presence of Christ, I'm I'm trying to encourage people to not to put your faith on trial that way, but to to put the science aside and really get down to what it means to believe in what Christ said that this is my body and and to let your belief get firm first and then go be awed by the miracles. But you got to have that belief there first. One of the things when I was a young person, when I was a young boy growing up, I grew up in a small little town called Oconto in Wisconsin. It was about 35 minutes from the border of what we call the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and then there are other cities in the UP. And in the city of Escanaba, there was this man named <laughs> Irving Houle. His name he took was Francis a married man, but he had stigmata. He had the wounds of Christ oh. in his hand, a modern man. And there is a cause for his sainthood. The church investigated the stigmata case and everything. But I just remember going as a young kid, our parish did a bus trip there, <laughs> and he would pray with people, he would give talks, whatever. And I was just really struck by the fact that this man had stigmata. And that almost became, as you mentioned, one of those like proof points for my faith. Like, this man has this, so that means God is real and I believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches, whereas I should have assented to it even without something like that. These things can aid our faith, they can help our faith, but mm -hmm. they shouldn't become the foundation of what we believe. Exactly. And that's kind of what you're saying. Yes, exactly. And they, and they should be, they can be aids. I mean, Jesus, we, we, it wouldn't be right to say, we don't need any miracles at all. We should just only have faith because this, as we know in the Bible, Christ worked miracles um, to aid people in their belief. Um, but they, but they are just that they are aids for our belief. Um, and I, you know, I, in writing this myself, you know, you know how it is when you write, it, it's a journey for you, the author, <laughs> maybe more than it ever is a journey for the people who read it. But I really had to get my head around that, that my faith has to be intact. It has to be firmly intact to be able to write about these miracles, because if, if it were to be true, if, if there were some, thing I learned that something I thought was true was not true about the science, or there was some fraudulent activity with these miracles, um, would that shake my faith? And I had to say, no, I had to be sure that it wouldn't, because be before I could even dive into studying the science, because when it comes to science and data, I'm a very critical analyst. Like I'm, I'm trained to do that. And may maybe I take it too far sometimes, but I'm, I'm very skeptical of scientific data. I, I don't want to take somebody's word for what they interpret. I want to see the data myself. I want to come to my own conclusions. And and I was afraid that when I started diving into the data, I might be disappointed. And I, and I was disappointed with some of the data. Um, but I, the only way I could do that safely was to be absolutely grounded in my faith. And I had to do a lot of praying um, to be able to do this. Uh, but, it, but it was wonderful. It, it strengthened my faith you know, for me, it wasn't seeing the miracles. It was, it was getting, it was realizing that everything we know about these miracles is from our limited human perspective and that the enormity of faith underneath and above and through it all is the real thing that we need as Catholics. Now, one of the things I seem to recall, and this could be something that I was told and it's completely false, but I was told that in these Eucharistic miracles, 
that the blood, when it was analyzed, that it was, you know, the type of O blood, which was meant as a universal donor. And so people took that to be kind of this theological reality. Well, if Jesus has this blood type of the universal donor, well, that affirms that he dies for all of humankind. Is this something that's true, that that the blood type analyzed was as such? It was, so they, they were, it's AB, type AB. And there are other explanations for the type, you know, the result from the test, the, the data being AB. And that was one of the things I was kind of disappointed in. And I felt like the uh, judge and my judgment that the scientists that are reporting on this are not telling us the whole story because you can get false positives for AB pretty easily. Um, and how, how if, if you don't mind, I'll just do the, explain the science just a little bit. In in your under blood cells, we all have um, immunoglobins, and there are these um, extra antigens on there that we call the antigens A and B. And so, if you have on your blood on the surface of your blood cells, if you have both the A antigen and the B antigen, you're going to have the anti A and anti B antibodies in the blood serum. If you just have the A antigen, you're going to have the anti-B um, antibody. If you have the B, you're going to have the anti-A antibody. So when, when they're doing the blood type test, there's two ways to do it. You can look at what antigens are on the blood cells, but you can also look at what antibodies are in the blood serum. In these Eucharistic miracles, there is no serum. And there are several different explanations for getting a type AB on the antigens that are on the blood cells. So it doesn't necessarily follow that just because you get a type AB from the, the immunological test, the blood typing test, it doesn't necessarily follow that the blood is type AB. Um, so because there are other things in the, the impurities and especially with these samples that have been sitting around for hundreds of years, there are impurities present and that needs to be taken into consideration as well. So the fact that all of these samples type to be type AB and that it's a universal blood type, it, it could very well be false positives on those. There could be other explanations for it. So it's not saying that it wasn't type AB. It's not even saying that the blood doesn't all come from the same man. It's just saying that our scientific analysis can't really conclusively determine that these blood samples are all type AB. So, you know, that's more than that's, that's more than uh, than you it's it's a lot it's a lot more amazing just to say all of the blood samples from these Eucharistic miracles and from the Shroud of Turin are type AB, the most common type of blood found in the Middle Eastern man. Um, that sounds amazing, but I just urge a little bit of hesitancy there. It, 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 I just say it like this: the science is not conclusive on that. It suggests it, but it's not conclusive. This book that you co-authored with Father George Elliott, Behold His Eye, available from Tan Books, is about the Eucharist and about kind of renewing Eucharistic belief. And 
I know, and we all know that the U.S. bishops right now are undergoing a Eucharistic revival. They want to do this three-year plan really to come to realize and to promote and to preach on the Holy Eucharist and and to really convey to the faithful that this is what we believe and you must believe it. And if you believe it, then it's going to change your life. How do you mm-hmm. think your book, Behold, It Is I, is going to contribute to the Eucharistic revival? I hope that it, it, the first time I gave a talk on some of this data that I found and was critical of it, people literally got up and walked out. And that's never happened to me before. And I was, I was very, um, I wasn't upset that they walked out. I was worried that I had damaged, that I had some way caused them to cause their, affected their faith. You know, I, I prayed that I hadn't done anything that would damage someone's faith. And I thought maybe I had. But the, the reason for writing this book is to cut away and, re- and release people from this dependency on science in our time to, to think about it. You know, we don't need these, we don't, we don't need those miracles in Lanciano or Balsena or Buenos Aires. We don't, if it were somehow proved that those miracles didn't actually happen, it should not one bit affect our faith. We should just go, Oh, okay. Well, they, their scientific data wasn't right, but the miracles totally could have happened. The, the point of the book is to get people to really, really, really think about, you know, take away the crutches of science and really just let faith, your faith in Jesus Christ, stand on its own legs. And that needs to be everything that guides your life. Science is a chip off the old block. It's something to be amazed by. But don't please, and this is Father Yaki talking to, our faith should never depend on science. Now, you well, that's wrote my contribution. <laughs> You wrote the third section of the book, and Father George Elliott then wrote the first two sections of the book. What does he cover? He covers the real apologetics for um, the proofs of the real presence of Christ. So the proofs, and we we go through at the beginning talking about what we mean by proof, that the evidence. If you don't believe that God authored the Bible, you're probably not going to accept the scriptural proof. So you know, we just we just say that out loud. But he does go through, and his part is really the most beautiful part, and it's the reason to buy the book, because it's a handbook of very clear, concise apologetics on what does the Bible say. Because we, we, Father Elliot and I down here in Tyler, Texas, East Texas, we live in the belt buckle of the Bible belt. I mean, we're smack in the, in the heart of Protestant land. And we're surrounded by Protestants who question us on this belief. And so he, as in his pastoral concerns, compiled the apologetics on what does the Bible say, that it's not just the one scripture or set of scriptures that say, this is my body, but he shows how to read the Bible typologically, how we read the old in the light of the new and the new in the light of the old and how there were prefigurements in the Old Testament, types and prefigurements like the tree of life, the sacrifice of Melchizedek, the Passover, the manna in the desert, the bread of presence. He explains how all of that was leading up to the institution of the Eucharist and how it had to be the bread and the wine and instituted the way it was and how it all fits together. And it was prophesying that, that Christ would do this. And then he has the second section of the book on what the church fathers say, and he hmm. just continues from Scripture 
into the apostles and the early church fathers to show this was the foundational belief of Christianity in the beginning. So he's trying to get our Protestant brothers and sisters to to feel comfortable opening up their eyes to this bigger presence, to realize that they can sit in a Catholic church and have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ like they've never known before. Well, it sounds like a marvelous book. It sounds like a book everybody should have because it's going to deepen your Eucharistic belief. It's going to help you to defend your Eucharistic belief and to really know what it is that we as Catholics believe. It's called Behold It Is I. It's available from Tan Books wherever you buy your Catholic books, wherever you get them. So I encourage you to go out and get it. And Dr. Stacy, do you have a website? Can people find you online? How do they do that? Yeah, they they have to kind of sort of spell my name, <laughs> <laughs> and and thank and I am really impressed that you were able to pronounce it because it gives just about everybody trouble. Um, but but StacyTrasenkos.com, and if you you know the search engines are so good now. If you get close to Stacy Trasenkos and search it, you'll find my website. But um, I try to. I just try to maintain that website um, with the just kind of like a big giant business card of everything I'm working on um, for speaking and writing and um, the courses I teach. I teach a lot of courses completely online. I was doing it before COVID, long before COVID, because I wanted to be home with our kids. Um, so they can find me there, StacyTrasenkos.com. Well, wonderful. I thank you so much for your time today and discussing these Eucharistic miracles. And as we come up to Holy Thursday and receive the Holy Eucharist, it's a great reminder of who it is that we receive, that it is the Lord. And we can behold him on that day and every day and every Sunday as we celebrate the Holy Mass. So thanks so much for being with me. Thank you, Father. Thanks for listening to today's show. I hope that my conversation with today's guest was one that enriched you spiritually and also helped you to foster a deeper love for the Blessed Virgin Mary. If you enjoyed this podcast, could you do me a favor? Go over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the podcast so that others might find it as a recommended podcast from other Catholic podcasts that they might listen to. And if you don't mind, share about the show on social media so that your friends and family might come to find it and be enriched by our conversations as well. And if you don't mind, you can follow me on social media at FR Edward Looney on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And this show, How They Love Mary, will soon be a book available from Sophia Institute Press. You can already go over to their website and pre-order How They Love Mary. Thanks so much for listening. May God bless you today. Know of my prayers for you. And may Mary pray for you today and always.